You're listening to the sermon audio from Redemption Church. Redemption Church exists to exalt Christ, edify the saints, and evangelize the world for the glory of God. For more information on Redemption Church, just go to redemption.church. Invite you to turn to Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1 through 2. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1 through 2. Let me read God's word. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. This is the word of the Lord. The cliche goes that imitation is the sincerest form of flattery. Perhaps you've said it. I'm sure you've heard it. You know, we have a way of learning by following in the example of others. Children learn to talk by repeating the words of their parents. An aspiring artist learns to paint by mimicking the brush techniques of the great masters. A golfer learns to golf to improve his game by imitating and learning from the swings of the professionals. You see, we all have within us in our own different spheres, we have within us this innate desire to replicate that which is excellent, that which is done well. So if you have an aspiration to the culinary arts, you can go online and you can find copycat recipes. Right? If you if times are hard and, and you want to learn how to make and you want to eat some red lobster cheddar biscuits, you can do so without having to step foot in a red lobster because you can find the copycat recipe online and give it a hand. Or if you want to give it a go, you can try your hand at homemade copycat Chick-fil-A nuggets. Or you can email Caitlin and give it a go at the Redemption Church homemade communion crackers, right? But making copycat recipes, if you've ever attempted it, it's a lot harder than you think because even if you follow the recipe to the T, the copycat recipe just doesn't ever seem to hold up to the original, no matter how hard you try. So perhaps Oscar's Wilde's his great twist on the old cliche is probably more accurate. Imitation is the sincerest form of flattery that mediocrity can pay to greatness. So our text today calls us to imitate God, to imitate God. That is a standard of perfection and excellence that makes our attempt at just copycatting uh, restaurant recipes seem a little childish and quaint. But yet, as God's children, we are called to imitate our heavenly father, to be like him. And so we follow him as both the source and giver of love. But yet, by the grace of God given to us in the Lord Jesus Christ, we strive to be more like him, to imitate God. So in Ephesians 5, 1 through 2, we find ourselves in a bit of a transitionary passage. It's a bit of a short couple of verses. And as we were reading this with our family last night in preparation for Sunday, Jude said, it's only two verses. This should be a short sermon. (laughs) Oh, how naive, right? Oh, how naive. 
So this is indeed a transitionary passage, though. Paul is connecting the themes he introduced in chapter 4 to chapter 5, as he's called us to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have received in chapter 4, and he's coming into some heavy and some specific exhortations for the church that he will give us in chapter 5. And so as we hear from God's word this morning, we're going to be challenged to imitate God as his redeemed children by walking in love and thus following the pattern of Jesus himself. So if you're taking notes this morning, we will first consider the pattern of love. Secondly, we'll consider the call to practice love. And then thirdly, we will marvel at the price of love, the pattern, the practice the price. Let's begin with the pattern of love as imitators of God. Before Paul commands us to walk in love, he tees it up a bit. He points our attention to the God of love. Look at what he says. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. You see, Paul is doing a little bit more here than just calling our attention to God. He is giving us a command in this opening remarks. He's giving us an imperative, a, a command, a force that you might give a soldier. He, it's the same sort of imperative he gives in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32. Look back up there in your text where Paul says in the verse prior, be kind to one another. That be is an imperative. It's a command. Be kind to one another. It's that same sort of be, geneste, that, that Paul gives here in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1. The same verb, therefore be imitators of God. This isn't a suggestion for God's people. This is a command for God's people. He's encouraging us to be imitators of God, but it's more than just an encouragement. It's got force behind it the way a general commands a soldier. So throughout the second half of Ephesians, if you've been with us throughout this year as we've been working through this book of the Bible, we have seen that the second half of Ephesians has been laying bare before us the implications of the great gospel that has saved us from our sins. Paul has been expounding before us the good and necessary consequences of what it means to be a Christian. And the connection that Paul makes is clear that those who are saved by God, Ephesians 1, 2, and 3, are imitators of God, Ephesians 4, 5, and 6. The holy love of God that has elected us and redeemed us in Christ is the same holy love that we ought to live out towards one another. And as Christians, empowered by the indwelling spirit of God, we should be like God, be imitators of God. We should be like God, not in the sense of the serpent's first temptation to Adam and Eve. You remember that back in Genesis chapter 3. Our striving to be like God isn't an attempt to subvert God or replace God by making ourselves out to be God. That's what Adam and Eve did. That was the temptation of the serpent. But what does Paul mean when he calls us to be imitators of God? We are to mimic his blameless character by the conduct of our lives. We are to replicate his love and, and generosity in our interaction with one another. And we are to humbly live in dependence upon him and in the salvation we've received by his grace as we seek to walk in love towards one another. So in other words, Adam and Eve desired to be like God as an act of rebellion, but Christians strive to imitate God as an act of humble dependence. It is only here 
that we receive this instruction in the New Testament to imitate God from the Apostle Paul. Paul will talk about mimicking and being, imitation, being imitators all over his letters, but this uniquely is the one place where Paul makes it explicit that we are to imitate God himself. Let me give you a few other places in Paul's letters that you can go back and look up later if you'd like. 1 Corinthians 4, verse 16. Paul says, I urge you then, be imitators of me. So he calls the Corinthians church to imitate him. Philippians 3, verse 17, he says, Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Paul, again, calls the church to imitate him as an apostle and others who walk faithfully. 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 7, For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us because we were not idle when we were with you. So Paul repeatedly calls the church to reflect, to follow his own example, but the closest that Paul gets to telling us to imitate God himself is actually in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 1. He says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. So one of the blessings of a church family like this is that you have so many good and godly examples to replicate, to follow. Indeed, that's one of the great benefits of a local church and bound in covenant membership together is we get to know one another's lives. And we can watch those who are faithful in the Lord Jesus Christ and we can do what they do. We can parent like they parent. We can speak like they speak. We can steward like they steward. And so there's a great benefit from the example that we have in brothers and sisters in the church. Paul tells us to do that repeatedly throughout his letters. But here in Ephesians 5, verse 1, Paul helps us recognize that the pattern that we should replicate is the Lord himself. So by proxy, through other believers, sometimes the character of God will be revealed to you. You'll see God's character in the lives of your fellow covenant brothers and sisters. And where they accurately mirror God's own character, imitate them, as Paul calls us to imitate him, as he imitates Christ's. But this is an important and worth of note. We fail often, don't we? There are parts of our lives that tend to be exemplary and a call for invite others to imitate us. And then there are other parts of our lives, well, I don't want anybody to imitate me here on this point, right? So as we see Paul calling the church to imitate him, here he says that the ultimate one that we are to follow, the perfect example we are called to imitate is God himself, any brother or sister worthy of imitation is one who accurately mirrors God's character. So if God is our pattern for Christian discipleship, we are fundamentally called to be imitators of him. And then we should give ourselves to knowing this God. If this is the God we are to imitate. We better know something about him. And by God's grace, he has helped us know something about him as he has given us his word. I'm convinced that the greatest need in the church today is for the saints to have a true knowledge of God, a knowledge of God. We can't imitate a God that we don't know. So I think there are a few, maybe two prominent errors when it comes to the knowledge of God in the church today. And the first one is this that many possess a twisted and distorted knowledge of God, leading them to imitate a fabricated God. I'll say that one more time. Many possess a twisted and distorted knowledge of God. They don't have the, the right knowledge about God, and it leads them to imitate not the true God, but the God they fabricated by their own imagination. 
While some may seek to imitate God, they only imitate a God of their own imagination in this way. So as we consider the attributes of God, we far too quickly have this tendency to sever them apart from one another and cut them up in little pieces, right? We tend to amputate aspects of God's character that we find offensive and retain the ones that are most liked by our cultural sensibilities. And over time, what begins to happen is a culture, a generation of people can begin to fashion a God so edited that that God begins to look a lot like them. So many imitate a false God, a God that is staring back in the mirror, not the God who has revealed himself by his word. So instead of our lives imitating the one true and living God, we have this tendency to want to shove God into our own mold. And instead of imitating the one true God, we try to force God to imitate us. How rebellious is that? How rebellious are we? And we see this particularly with the attribute of God that we're emphasizing this morning as we gather to worship him, the God who is love, the God who loves his people. The love of God is glorious. We've sung about it. We've praised the Lord this morning because of it. It is wonderful. And we will see more about God's great love for us as we continue in our text this morning. But so often our temptation today is we take God's holy love and we sentimentalize it into some sort of hallmark card style of affirmation and acceptance. And thus we sever God's love from his holiness. And God's love is something that should astound us. But yet the way we talk so frequently, even in the church sometimes, about God's love is utterly contradictory to how God's love is defined in the Bible. So the only way to untwist a twisted view of God is to submit ourselves to the study of scripture. Only God's word can expose our cultural biases, our presuppositions, our distortions, our misunderstanding. God has so graciously revealed himself to us as he has spoken by his word. And so as we seek to imitate God, we need to understand who God has revealed himself to be. And we do so by resting on his inerrant an infallible word, not on the musings of our personal preferences or the pollings of popular surveys. God is who he is, and we know who he is by his word. And it's the God of the Bible that we are called to imitate and replicate in our behavior. Secondly, though, I think there's another error. The second error is unfamiliarity with this God unfamiliarity. Perhaps your view of God isn't twisted in error, but you really don't know this God that well. You really don't. You're not an outright heretic per se, but you just don't know the God who has revealed himself by the word. Your knowledge of God is simple. It's limited, maybe a little bit superficial. You believe that what the Bible says about God is true. You just don't know your Bible very well. And so you don't know how to imitate God. And so your growth in godliness as a believer has stagnated due to a lack of knowledge of God. And so by your slothfulness and by your negligence, you are unfamiliar with the God you are called to imitate. You see, when we live in a spiritual vacuum, when we fail to fill our lives with the truth of God's word, we immediately start jumping to imitate something else. Because we have so frequently failed to keep the eyes of our heart fixed upon the glories of Christ, we find ourselves so easily distracted by cheap knockoffs and imitations. 
We confuse the pleasures of God with the pleasures of the world. And like mistaking a genuine Rolex for a fake one that you bought off the street in New York. Right? See, so whether you have a twisted view of God or are simply unfamiliar with God, the correction is the same, isn't it? If we are to imitate this God, then we must immerse ourselves in the word of God. Meditate upon the glory of God and the fullness of his attributes as revealed in the scriptures. And as you read the Bible, you will find that God frequently surprises you, amazes you, overwhelms you as you read his word. He is not like us. Praise be to God. He is majestic, he is marvelous, he is holy and compassionate, he is wrathful and kind, and yes, he is abounding in love for sinners. So during his free time this week, uh, my son Jude took it upon himself, as young nine-year-old boys tend to do, he took it upon himself to alphabetize his bookshelf. I mean, isn't that what you did when you were nine? That's what I did, right? So he decided to alphabetize his books by the first name of the author. And that evening, he showed me the fruit of his labors as he alphabetized his books and his organizational work. We were very proud. But, but as I went and looked at it, I was a little confused for a second because I saw his Bibles awkwardly placed between the letters F and H. And so I asked him, Jude, why, why are your Bibles here? Why did you put them here? And he answered, G for God. And what an instruction that is for us, right? That we have a book on our shelf written by God himself, the God of the universe, the God who has made us and the God who has saved us. And surely if we recognize that the Bible is God's book, it is God's word, surely we should pick it up and read it. And surely we should strive to imitate the perfect character of this God as we walk in his love. So if you will follow this command that Paul gives us to imitate God, you have to know who he is. The Christian mind should be filled with divine truth as our primary business. Engage yourself in the study of God's word. This is what Jonathan Edwards would tell his congregation is the main business of every Christian. You might have lots of businesses, lots of work, lots of responsibilities, but he says the main business of the Christian should be attaining knowledge of God through his word. So study theology, pour over the attributes of God, marvel at his incommunicable attributes, and let them lead you to worship as you marvel at his independence, his immutability, his omnipresence. And then let us seek to imitate as best we can his communicable attributes, his goodness, his wisdom, his truthfulness, his love, his holiness, his wrath, and his mercy. So pick up a good book on theology to help you think deeply about our glorious God. You can go after church and stop by the bookstall, pick up J.I. Packer's Knowing God, which we'll be talking about at Theology Breakfast this fall. Let us think deeply about who this God is as he's revealed himself by his word so that we might imitate him aright. But we imitate God, Paul says, because we are his beloved children. That's important to to highlight here. As those adopted as God's children through Christ, God is our father. Children imitate their parents for better and for worse, don't they? And so do we as God's children, right? We ought to seek to imitate God who is a perfect example for us. We should grow in the likeness of our heavenly father as we strive to imitate him because God's love has an aim as he works in our lives in Christ because he has chosen us from eternity past as his children to create us after his own likeness 
And so redeemed by Christ and secure in our adoption, we do what Paul says in Ephesians 4, verse 24. We put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So church, imitate God. He is the pattern of how we are to love. And so let us not only study the pattern of love, but let us put this love into practice. The practice of love, our second point this morning. As we imitate God, so do we walk in love. Now, if you've been with us throughout this whole series on Ephesians, this word walk has come up so many times. It is, again, an imperative in our passage today, a force of command. And we've seen Paul use this language, this metaphor of walking. It's a favorite of the Apostle Paul. It's a word that he frequently uses to describe the conduct of our lives. In fact, he uses the term eight different occasions throughout the letter to the Ephesians. And why don't we do a quick pass through the book to help you spot all the ways he uses walk. So if you got Ephesians open, go to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 through 2. Look at what Paul says. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Ephesians 2 verse 10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Look at Ephesians 4 verse 1, right? The start of this application section of the letter. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Look at Ephesians 4 verse 17. There's actually two occasions of the word walk here. One is walk, one is do, translated do in the ESV. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do or walk in the futility of their minds. Ephesians 5.2, our passage today, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Look at Ephesians 5.8, walk as children of the lights. Look at Ephesians 5 verse 15, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. Isn't it amazing how frequently Paul returns to this image of walking throughout the book of Ephesians. And Paul urges us to walk differently now that we have been redeemed and adopted as God's children. Salvation in Christ produces a changed life down to the most ordinary and mundane aspects of our lives, even how we walk or stride. It is an image that keeps coming throughout this whole series, and Paul uses it frequently to help us see the connection between the gospel and how we conduct ourselves as children birthed by this gospel. The Christian life is fully integrated, fully integrated. As Paul describes how the gospel changes our hearts, it is a complete transformation from deadness to life. And as he describes how the transformation of our minds as we learned Christ, this new life he's been telling us is expressed in our action towards one another. So as Paul teaches throughout Ephesians, there's a certain logical flow of the gospel's transformation in our life. God gives us new hearts, new minds. We are regenerated. We are born again of the spirit of God. And so we are saved by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Christian life is the one in which we are continually building each up other, uh, building up each other in the context of the local church where the leaders and teachers equip us for the work of ministry and we build up one another. We walk in holiness, forsaking our former selves, Paul says. We put on the new self. We walk in love as a result of God's saving activity. 
Christian obedience, love, and holiness, these are fruits that burst forth from the children of God. As Jesus said, a tree is known by its fruits. That is precisely Paul's point in the second half of the letter. As children of this God of love, we therefore walk in love. Sometimes the genetic bond between a parent and a child can be incredibly similar. So much so that it gets a little eerie when you start paying too close attention. If you saw a picture of my dad and I standing next to each other, you might have to take a second glance to see which one of us is which. We have the same prominent Dieter nose. We have the same squinty Dieter eyes. We have the same bald head. I not only lost my hair at the same time as my dad, but I lost it in the exact same pattern to the T, almost to the follicle. Our bodily and facial structure are remarkably similar. Even the color of our eyes match. And so as God's children now, God is reshaping us. He is forming us into his children, and he's forming us to resemble him and to repair his image in us. God created us in his image. We marred that image by our sin, and now Jesus is recreating us as his workmanship in Christ for good works. And so as we grow in Christians, as Christians, we should increasingly begin to think as God thinks. We should act as God acts. We should love as God loves. And how do we walk in love? What does it look like to keep pace with our Heavenly Father? I enjoy going out for walks with my children. In fact, I went out for a walk this morning. I just love the fresh air and and, and the exercise. And so my children will often want to go with me, not so much in the the summer because it's too hot, but usually when it's cooler, they'll like to come out with me. And when we go out for a walk, whether it's at Lake Wilson or around the neighborhood, uh, the children have a terrible habit of falling behind my pace. Right? On the one hand, I know it's a bit challenging for them to keep up. They have to take two steps for my every one step. They grow tired, and before long, they are falling behind. And so I have to keep encouraging them, particularly when I'm walking one-on-one. Keep pace so we can be side-by-side and walk and converse together. Keep stride. Stay in sync with my pace and with my steps. And so it is with the Christian life. God is the, our pattern. He is the one we are called to replicate and imitate and to follow behind. And we are struggling children so frequently, aren't we? Trying to keep pace with our heavenly father. And if you're like me, often you fall behind. God's having to encourage me to keep up, keep the pace. And so we should strive to walk as imitators of God, even as we walk with God. And when it comes to how we love, this is important for us because when Paul tells us to walk in love, it means that God sets the pace of how we walk in that love. Paul points to what this sort of love looks like all across Ephesians, all across the scriptures, but but more specifically, more narrowly, Ephesians 4 and chapter 5 give us the indication, as Paul is summarizing here, just how we are to walk in this love. And so it means we walk worthy lives. It means we walk worthy lives because God is holy as he is holy. It means, look at Ephesians 4 verse 2, it means that we walk with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. 
It means, chapter 4, verse 13, that we're eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. It means that we build up one another in love, Paul has said. It means that we put off our sin and we put on the new self. It means we put to death falsehood and unrighteous anger and stealing and corrupting talk. It means that we put away all bitterness and wrath and anger and slander along with malice. It means that we are kind to one another. It means that we are tenderhearted. It means that we forgive one another. This is what it means to be an imitator of God. This is what it means to walk in love. And as we'll see in Ephesians 5, Paul's going to continue to expound. What does it mean to be an imitator of God? What does it mean to walk in love? Walking in love means, look at chapter 5, verse 3. It means that we abstain from sexual immorality and all impurity. It means that we cast aside foolish talk and crude joking. It means that we expose, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 11, we expose the unfruitful works of darkness that we walk wisely, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. You see, walking in love means living out in your love, God's holy love. It means that you're putting off sin, that you're putting on righteousness. It means that you show love to all people, especially to our fellow saints in the household of God. So Christian, as you strive to imitate the Lord, are you keeping pace with your heavenly father? Are you walking in holiness or is your flesh dragging back to your former way of life? Are you coddling your sin instead of putting it to death? Are you growing more holy, more like Christ month by month, year by year? In your living, are you walking in tandem with God's holy standard or have you let your morals slip and has your conscience become defiled? Are you walking in love toward the church? Is your increasing knowledge of Jesus Christ producing within you a love for your brothers and sisters? Are you more committed to God's people than you were in the past? Do you love the saints as God has loved them? Do you serve them, sacrifice for them, pray for them, encourage them, instruct them as God has so done for you? Or are you letting anger and bitterness and clamor creep into your heart, dampening your love for Jesus's church? Are you walking in love toward others? Do you love your neighbor? Are you a good Samaritan? Are you praying for your lost friends? Are you sharing the gospel with those around you? Are you serving and meeting the needs of others? Are you generous to those who lack basic necessities? Do you care for the poor and the needy? You see, as Paul envisions life together as a church, the church is a holy community growing in love, love for the Lord, love for one another, and love for the lost and dying world around us. Each member of the church ought to be striving to imitate God, walking in his love. And of course, if we want to see most vividly, most clearly what it means to walk in love, we can read of just how God walked himself by looking to the example of Jesus Christ. And that leads us to point number three, the price of love. We walk in love as Christ loved us. Paul calls us to imitate God, walk in his love. And as he does so, he can't help, but yet again, point us to the preeminent demonstration of God's love in the Lord Jesus Christ. If we want to know how to walk in love, look to Jesus. Watch Jesus. As we read the Gospels, we see just how Jesus walked in holiness without sin. 
We read of Jesus' zeal for the truth, don't we? As he rebukes and refutes those who oppose the Lord and who misinterpret his word. We read of Jesus' compassion, don't we? And his tenderheartedness to the lowly, to the needy. In Christ Jesus, we see this conjunction of excellencies in his life, justice and mercy, wrath and love, glory and humility, power and servant-heartedness, holy yet abounding in grace. If you want to walk in love, go read the Gospels. Watch the life of Jesus. Go to Jesus who is the image of the invisible God. But as Paul urges us to walk in love, he calls us, though, to love in the same way that Christ has loved us. And he will do the same as he calls Christian husbands who are to love their wives as Christ loved the church. How did Jesus love? Well, Jesus's love was costly, sacrificial. Jesus died for sinners. Jesus's love was not just declared in word, I love you, but it was proven in action by his death. For the joy that was set before him, the text says, the scriptures say Jesus endured the cross Jesus's love, if he was to love us as we needed his love, his love required the price of his own life. But yet, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Even though we rebelled against him, even though we went our own way, even though we stubbornly refused our God, Jesus came to rescue us. The love of Christ is displayed for us as he, as Paul says, gave himself up for us. Our sin required payment, a payment which Jesus gladly paid. And even though Jesus had no sin, he bore the wrath for our sin so that as we come to him in faith, we can be forgiven and cleansed of all unrighteousness. You see, the just consequences of our sins are dealt fully and finally with Jesus' willingness to lay down his life for you and for me. Greater love has no one than this, Jesus said, than someone lay down his life for his friends. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. You see, God's love is so lavish, so wonderful, so giving, so sacrificial, that God did not hesitate to give us his own son to provide a final and full atonement for our sins. Friend, if you do not know this God of love today, I pray that you would respond to the good news of Jesus this morning with repentance and faith. Know this morning, know this morning the love of God in Christ Jesus that washes away all of our sins, that justifies us before a holy God, this God who in love gives us eternal life. And it is this God who has saved us out of the deadness of our sin by his love and who is now transforming us by that same love into his own image and likeness. You see, as we walk in love, we love others like Jesus. Are you doing that? We love one another by laying down our lives for one another. 
That's what Jesus did. That's what we do for one another. It means we sacrifice our interests. We put our interests on the back burner for the interests of others. It means that we go out of our way to encourage the discouraged, to give to the needy, to deny myself for the sake of another. Love is no sentimental feeling, but a conscious, willing sacrifice for the good of another. Church, are you willing to walk in this sort of love, the love of Christ? Do you love others as Jesus has loved you? Because as Paul is pointing us to Christ, he is not only giving us a model for love, but he's also giving us a motivation to love. I want to love others like Jesus has loved me. And so we imitate God and we walk in his love, following in the pattern of Jesus's love for us. And so God is glorified and honored by our lives. Jesus' Jesus's sacrifice for us, Paul says, was a fragrant offering, a sacrifice to God. And so should the life be of every Christian as we pour out ourselves in love for one another. So if you truly want to love your spouse, if you want to love your friends, if you want to love your children, if you want to love your fellow covenant members in this church, it will cost you. It will. It means putting yourself last for the spiritual good of those around you. It means dying to yourself, picking up your cross and following Jesus. And if you love like Jesus has loved you, if you do this like Jesus, sometimes you will feel like your whole life is a drink offering being poured out for the sake of others. Nevertheless, walking in love is the only way to abundant joy in Christ because it's the way of Christ. It's the love that Jesus has given us. God has saved us for this purpose. We are his workmanship. He has empowered us with his own spirit so that we can walk in this love, that we might love others as Jesus has loved us. And so Paul says in 2 Corinthians 2 verse 15, he says, for we are the aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. Is your life a fragrant offering? being offered to the Lord as every part of our life is being burned up for the glory of God as an offering to him. Can others smell the fragrance of God's love in your life? Both those who are saved and those who are perishing. Can they smell the aroma of the love of Christ by the way you conduct yourself? Christian God is recreating you as a new man a new woman, pattern after the image of the man, the human, the Lord Jesus Christ. You are his workmanship. And the love of God that has lifted up your depraved and dead heart out of the grave is the same love that now fills your heart by the Spirit of God. So therefore, church, be imitators of God. Walk in love just as Christ gave himself up for you. Give up your lives for others and take heart that which God commands us to do, he gives us the power to do. That's the good news of the gospel, right? His grace has saved us. He has redeemed us. He has made us his children. And God has saved us for this purpose. He has poured out his Holy Spirit in our hearts for this purpose. From eternity past, God has set his love on us from before the foundation of the world. And it has always, always been God's plan to conform you, Christian, to the image of his son. From before the very foundations of the earth, 
And the love of God is not only sacrificial, it is powerful in accomplishing the purpose which God sets his love. Do you remember the start of the Ephesians? Chapter one, this grand doxology. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. As I look at my life, I can see some glimpses of evidence of God's transformation by, by his grace. He's, he's making me holy. He's making me blameless day by day as I grow. And I can think, I can say I, with a good conscience that I walk in love more regularly today than I did in years past. But I still feel so sinful, so encumbered by the flesh. I'm not nearly as holy as I long to be. I don't love and walk in this love nearly as faithfully. I'm not keeping pace with God as I long to be. I still feel so selfish and entitled and prideful and self-centered. My love has a long ways to go before I'm keeping pace with Jesus. But don't be discouraged if you're convicted as I am convicted. God will make you holy and blameless before him. His grand purpose for your life as a Christian is to redeem you out of hell, but to save you so that you might be mature, to sanctify you, to conform you to the image of Christ. He will make us holy if you're in Jesus. And though we never arrive at perfection in this life, God's love will one day be completed. Its work will be complete in your life and in mine. And on that day, we will walk perfectly in sync at the pace of Jesus's love. Our future church is inevitable because it was determined by God before the foundations of the earth. Those united to Christ will be like Christ. This command to imitate God is not just a command in the gospel. It is a promise when you are learning to play a new instrument, it can be very discouraging when you're first starting out. You sound terrible. You seem to improve so very slowly. Most beginners are just tempted to throw in the towel and just give up, thinking, I'm never going to master this instrument. I'll never get it. Let me just give it up. But imagine for a second a time traveler. Donald Whitney tells this illustration in his book, Spiritual Disciplines of the Christian Life. He said, imagine for a second a time traveler shows up from the future and he plays before you a video of you 30 years into the future on a concert stage playing the piano and you're playing complex pieces of Chopin, running your hand up and down the piano with such skill, such excellence, such beauty, such ease. If you saw that clip as a six or seven year old playing the C major scale on your piano, wouldn't it motivate you to practice? to see who you would become, to see the sort of piano player that you might be? Wouldn't it encourage you to persevere, to keep going, knowing that you would one day reach that level of excellence? So it is with the Christian. We have a long ways to go if we are to walk in love, but we have the sure promise that God will complete his work in us. We will be filled with all the fullness of God. 
We will be recreated after the pattern of the new humanity in Jesus Christ. We will be righteous. We will be holy. We will be abounding in love. And so, church, may we then fix our eyes on Christ, and may we strive with all that is within us to walk in this love, knowing that one day we will no longer stumble, we'll no longer fall behind, but we will walk in step with our heavenly Father who has loved us and adopted us as his. His children. And so we will walk with the God of love in all eternity, enjoying the sweetness of his love in his presence. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we come before you so humbled, Lord, that you would not only save us from our sins, but Lord, that you would transform us, that you would help us to be imitators of you, O oh God, that you would help us as your beloved children to walk in your love, that you would help us to love as Christ has loved us. So, Father, even as we are convicted by our many sins, would we pray that day by day as your spirit works in your people, that you would convict us, lead us to repentance, and help us to set our eyes on Jesus, who is the author and perfecter of our faith. So, Lord, we ask that you might help us as your people, as Redemption Church, to walk in your love. But, Lord, I do pray for those here this morning who do not know your love. Lord, I pray, Lord, that they might see their sin they might be convicted by it. And Lord, that as they see their desperate need, that you would make them poor in spirit. And Lord, that you would turn their eyes to Christ. And Lord, as they see their sin and as they see Jesus' perfect love, that they would fall on their face in conviction. And Lord, that they would turn away from their sin. And Lord, that you might pour out your love in their hearts. And Lord, that they might respond to the good news of Jesus this morning with faith, trusting in Jesus as their Savior and Lord. God, we pray that you would save sinners even this morning. And Lord, that those of us who know your love, that we would walk faithfully in your love as we love one another, as we love your world. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.